So our study this evening focuses on John chapter 13, verses 21 through 30. But let's begin reading with verse 12, John 13, 12. And we'll read through verse 30. So after he had washed their feet and had taken his garments and was set down again, he said unto them, Know you what I have done to you? You call me Master and Lord, and you say, Well, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and Master, have washed your feet, ye also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that ye should do as I have done to you. Verily, verily, I say unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord, neither he that is sent greater than he that sent him. If ye know these things, happy are ye if ye do them. I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it come, that when it is come to pass, ye may believe that I am he. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that receiveth, whomsoever I send receiveth me, and he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples, whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him, that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. He then, lying on Jesus' breast, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, He it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. And after the sop, Satan entered into him. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. Now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. For some of them thought, because Judas had the bag, that Jesus had said unto him, Buy those things that we have need of against the feast or that he should give something to the poor. He then, having received the sop, went immediately out, and it was night. In John 13, as we have just very briefly read, uh, we saw how Jesus took upon himself the form of a servant, uh, knelt at the feet of his disciples, he being the master, the Lord, and uh, washed each of their feet. Again, illustrating that he didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. 
and he also did so in order to set an example for all of us um, that uh, our mission uh, is not to be served even if we have some position of leadership. Uh, a leader, according to Christ, is not one who is to be served but even has a greater responsibility to serve perhaps than those uh, who are beneath them. We also saw in the, a previous study how uh, Peter objected uh, to Jesus kneeling at his feet and washing, uh, wanting to wash his feet. And Peter basically said, uh, Lord, that's never going to happen. Uh, you're never going to wash my feet. Jesus, you recall, responded that if he did not wash the feet of Peter, uh, then Peter had no part, no relationship with him. To which Peter then responded, well, Lord, if that's the case, wash my, my head, wash my hands, wash my whole body. And the Lord explained that if one is entirely washed, uh, one does not need uh, to be washed again. That uh, all one needs to do is to be washed one time entirely. And one, however, does need to have one's feet washed uh, regularly. And again, though Jesus doesn't go on to explain what that meant, we know from other parts of, of the Bible that Jesus is saying once one is justified before God as judge and all of his sins pardoned before God as judge, he doesn't have to go through that kind of a washing to be cleansed of all of his sins judicially before God as judge ever again. But what he does need, now that God is reconciled to him, he does need his feet washed daily. Uh, he needs to come before the Lord as his Father now, uh, according to the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven. And so he comes to a reconciled Father to have his feet cleansed, to have his heart cleansed of sin uh, on a regular basis. So we see here, uh, uh, and we noted this, that Jesus knew, and we're going to look at this in more detail tonight, but Jesus knew that it was Judas that was going to betray him, and yet he knelt at the feet of, Je of Judas and washed even his feet. He knew that uh, Judas had already uh, concocted a plan, conspired with the leaders, the Jewish leaders, uh, to betray Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. And yet Jesus kneels at the feet of Judas and washes his feet. This, again, shows the humility of Jesus Christ. Though being God, being God, he lowered himself to such an extent uh, that he even washed the feet of the very one who was going to betray him. Uh, if that's not humility, uh, I don't know what humility is. And that's the humility that we are to have in serving one another. Uh, Jesus didn't cling to his rights. Um, he left the glory of heaven uh, to become a servant to us all.
Already in this section, before we get to um, the text before us this evening, Jesus had already generally alluded to the fact that uh, one of his disciples uh, was not saved, and one of them was to become uh, his betrayer. There was a more general allusion, not a not a, a specific pointing to someone, but uh, you recall, for example, in verses 10 through 11, Jesus saith to him, to Peter, he that is washed needeth not save to wash his feet, but is clean every whit, and ye are clean, but not all. In other words, not all of you are justified. Not all of you have had your sins uh, washed. And he's, uh, verse 11, for he knew who should betray him, Therefore said he, ye are not all clean. And then in verse 18, which we also looked at in a previous study, Jesus says, I speak not of you all, I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled, he that eateth bread with me hath lifted up his heel against me. Again, this is speaking of Judas who would betray him. So there's the general, more general uh, uh, allusion to one of the disciples, but now uh, in the verses before us tonight, he gets very specific and identifies his betrayer there at the table. John 13, 21 is is, uh, beginning with our text for this evening. When Jesus had thus said, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. And so the question is, why was Jesus troubled? Why was Jesus distressed? Well, it seems to be uh, over his knowledge, especially that one of his own disciples, uh, whom he had chosen to be a disciple, whom he had cared for, whom he had taught, whom he, with whom he had spent so much time over the past three years in ministry, had already conspired with the Jewish leaders to betray the Lord Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. Coupled that with the fact that he was about to suffer uh, physically, outwardly, and inwardly in his soul as no one, as no man has ever suffered. He was to suffer as God's one sacrifice for the sins of all of his people. Uh, The pain, the anguish, uh, the, uh, the mental torment, the physical torment, the sorrow of being betrayed by Judas, his disciples about to desert him. These were not uh, matters of which he was unacquainted. You know, all of his disciples deserted him. Being accused falsely, treated like a common criminal, though he was the son of God, uh, sinless, suffering God's curse, God's wrath for all of our sins as his people. All of this was bearing down upon the Lord Jesus. You see, That tells us, does it not, when it says 
in verse 21 that he was troubled in spirit. It tells us Jesus was not a stone. He was not a robot. Uh, he was fully man. He was truly man. He was truly God as well and fully God. But he was truly a man. He was not impervious to, to pain and to suffering. And yet knowing that as distressed and troubled as he was, knowing what was about to come, he didn't run from it. He willingly went forward with that out of his great love, his infinite love for us. That was what sent him to the cross, his love for us, his people. He willingly drank that full cup. He didn't take, again, a drop of that anguish and torment upon his tongue. He didn't uh, take one swallow. He drank the full cup of, that, of God's wrath uh, for us and our sake, that we might be delivered from our sins, that we might enjoy forever the blessings of everlasting life, that we might never know the fires of torment and hell. That's why he did it, to rescue and save us, because he loved us. We read in verse 21, he says, Verily, verily, I say unto you, that one of you shall betray me. Um, again, that very familiar Verily, verily, that introduction. In other words, Jesus is saying, listen carefully what, what I'm saying. This is very important. One of you will betray me. Now Judas obviously is setting or is present at the table there. I'm sure uh, he was already uncomfortable in the more general type of uh, mentioned that there was a, a betrayer that he's going to be betrayed. I'm sure he was uncomfortable. I'm sure that he was self-conscious. But here, uh, I'm sure the the spotlight is turning away from just generally speaking the those in the room to someone in particular. One of you, Jesus says, and I'm sure he's beginning to squirm. He's beginning to get very very uncomfortable because he's already plotted and planned. He's already betrayed the Lord Jesus. Um, and uh, here he is. The spotlight now, Jesus is focusing upon him. Verse 22, Then the disciples looked one on another, doubting of whom he spake. Whereas what Jesus had earlier said, in John 13 was more general, was more vague. This statement is getting pretty clear. One of you is going to betray me. I'm sure, again, everyone but Judas, uh, the, the disciples, the 11 that were present, are caught off guard uh, and begin looking at one another, speechless, in astonishment uh, as to what this could possibly mean. Uh, who among them? And again, it, that only tells us that how much Judas fit in 
with all of the disciples that no one suspected him. When Jesus says, one of you is going to betray me, it shows again, and we'll talk about this as we go through the study, but it just shows how close someone can get to Jesus Christ and be lost. That's not to, that's not to cause us to, who believe and trust in him and, uh, and desire to live for him and to keep his commandments. It's not to uh, send us away in fear, trembling that uh, we're lost, but it is, I think, important to realize that, that uh, there are many who profess uh, to be Christians and many who even hold places of, of leadership in the church. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 7 that many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Have we not perform many wonders in thy name? Um, have we not uh, done all of these things in thy name? And Jesus will say to them, depart from me, ye who work iniquity, I never knew you. Again, it's sobering. And it ought to sober us. I don't think it should frighten us if we truly are trusting in Christ, but it should sober us. And to say, I can't take this stuff lightly. I can't just think I'm breezing along in my Christian life if I do not take this, these matters seriously. Um, then I should be concerned about that. Here was again, I would suggest the perfect uh, in Judas, the perfect uh, hypocrite, uh, perfect actor. I think that it's also important for us to realize as, as uh, with anyone who, who professes faith in Jesus Christ, that hypocrisy in our lives, and I, I want to say that I think in every Christian's life, because none of us are perfect and sinless, I think we all have hypocrisies. That doesn't mean that we're all, that a true Christian can be a hypocrite, uh, an actor um, uh, f fully, um, uh, an actor and hypocrite, but I do believe that we all have inconsistencies. That's those are hypocrisies, things that we say we believe that we don't practice. Uh, and I think that it's very important that we realize where those inconsistencies are in our life, that we not just brush over them, that we not just uh, uh, put them behind us and, and say no big deal. Because that's, that's where uh, small inconsistencies and hypocrisies lead to large inconsistencies and large hypocrisies. Usually sin in our life, if it's not dealt with, doesn't remain static. Um, it grows it increases. And so if we don't deal, if we don't take seriously uh, sin in our life and flee to the open arms 
of our glorious Savior who welcomes us, who loves us as we, as we flee into his arms. He doesn't push us away. Uh, so, uh, again, an admonishment to us all. Don't consider the conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit to be something terrible. Uh, but consider conviction of sin by the Holy Spirit uh, to be a blessing uh, because that means our conscience is still sensitive. When our conscience becomes insensitive, when it becomes calloused and hard, our hearts become hard so that sin doesn't even bother us, that's where we ought to be concerned. But to, uh, to, but to be convicted... Uh, by the Holy Spirit is a blessing. And how do we tell the difference between conviction by the Holy Spirit and condemnation by Satan? Because again, I think uh, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. That's one of, one of the things that he uh, endeavors to do is to continually bring accusations against the brethren. Well, one, I think, one key difference, when the Holy Spirit convicts us, uh, he drives us to the mercy of God in Christ Jesus. When Satan accuses us, he doesn't want us fleeing to Christ. He wants us simply to be under that condemnation under those accusations. And so, again, I think it's helpful to understand uh, the source uh, of either the condemnation, the accusation, as opposed to the conviction. And, and when we understand the source, we can, um, where we're being accused, and no, kind of no hope, no uh, no uh, mercy, no love. I I think that we can assume and we can say, well, that's that's the enemy who's seeking to drive me to the place where uh, I give up, where I basically fall into this pit of despair. Whereas when the Holy Spirit convicts us, He convicts us, uh, and it can be sharp. Uh, conviction isn't just a, a subtle prick necessarily. It can be a very, um, it can be a very sharp um, conviction uh, that strikes us. But there is hope. There is hope in the conviction which the Holy Spirit gives, as opposed to a kind of hopelessness by way of the condemnation and accusations of the enemy. Verse 23, now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Now this may sound strange. Uh, there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples. And that seems odd to us, but I think that if we realize uh, that in the cultural and historical context in which we're reading here in this Gospel of John, 
takes us back to a time in which those who shared a meal around a table didn't sit at chairs around a table, uh, but they rather uh, reclined on a couch at a table. And so they're, they're, the table would be here and the, and the couch would be around the table and they would be reclining uh, and probably on their elbows uh, with their feet away from the table and uh, their head and their side, uh, you know, there on the couch. And they would then take, you know, whatever they wanted from the table and, and eat it uh, or, or drink it. And so that was, that was how, you know, contrary to Michelangelo's Last Supper with everyone sitting in chairs around, uh, around the table there, um, that's, that's not what we uh, have uh, that's not historically accurate. This is historically accurate. And that's why it, it says that the disciple whom Jesus loved, and I uh, believe that that's the writer of this uh, gospel, John. Uh, John is the one who's referred to as the one whom Jesus loved. Rather than, rather than um, identifying himself by name, that seems to be the way that he refers to himself uh, throughout the gospel. Uh, several times he refers to himself uh, as the one whom Jesus loved because he was uh, within the inner circle. Peter, James, and John. Those were the three kind of uh, uh, disciples that the Lord showed a, a particular kind of favor too. Again, uh, all of them were his disciples, but he did have those that he was particularly familiar with and close to. And, and he took them, um, for example, to the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, and John. Peter, James, and John were also invited to uh, go with the Lord Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, uh, uh, where Jesus prayed and the others remained behind. So we see that kind of uh, special attention, as it were, given to these three. And then, uh, and then John himself, referring to himself as the one whom Jesus loved. And so in verse 23, it would appear that if John is uh, leaning uh, you know, you can imagine again, you know, you're on your elbow with your feet away. Here's the table. The one over here uh, on, your, on your left would be kind of leaning. You know, if they were, you know, um, uh, also partaking from the table, there would be that, again, that kind of, uh, and again, I don't know how scrunched they were, but they, they could have uh, been uh a little closer together, but that's that's the thing that we ought to understand about the arrangement around the table. And so it's probably John, uh, most likely, that is the closest one, you know, as far as spatially close as well, that he is right there beside the Lord Jesus uh, at the Last Supper. Verse 24 says, Simon Peter therefore beckoned to him 
that is to, to John, to the, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, beckoned uh, to him that he should ask who it should be of whom he spake. So interestingly enough, um, Peter is not very close uh, um, to where Jesus is. He, he's, uh, we don't know how far away, you know, in the shape of the table or that type of thing, but he was not close enough to Jesus to be able to ask Jesus directly. And so he kind of waves, he gestures uh, to John, you know, kind of ask Jesus uh, who he's talking about. He gestures uh, to John, beckons to him to ask who it is concerning uh, whom this could be, which of the disciples. But it also shows uh, the typical forwardness of, of Peter. Uh, he's not going to be like the others, just uh, remaining quiet, kind of with uh, dazed eyes, but he's going to want some answers, and so he's forward to try to get answers. Um, and again, uh, that's just his nature. He's not going to be sitting there quietly. He's going to be one who acts, but it's also, I think, indicative of his love for the Lord, uh, that uh, one, of, one of us is going to betray you, Lord. Uh, I think that it just shows uh, his great love for Christ as well. Verse 25, He then lying on Jesus' breast, that is again, uh, his bosom lying, as we just said, um, uh, close to Jesus, saith unto him, Lord, who is it? Um, I think again, people who have perverted and corrupt intentions and designs anyways, they approach a passage like this, they're going to draw immoral conclusions uh, from this. They're going to draw something sexual uh, from this. Uh, and uh, the, this is, there's nothing sexual about this. Uh, this is just, uh, again, um, the nearness and closeness of, of those who were sitting around the table, or not sitting, reclining around the table. And so again, uh, this, this is not to be understood. And again, you know, the King James Version uses the term breast, I think, you know, chest, uh, his bosom, as it stated earlier, is what we're, you know, talking about here. But anyway, um, Peter beckons to him, and then John, says, uh, or asks the Lord Jesus, uh, who is it? Lord, who is it? Verse 26, and I, I think that, uh, let me just note also, I, I think that uh, here, because of how close proximity John was to Jesus, I don't think that he, um, said it loud enough for everybody to hear. This was kind of, uh, I think, done more in a quiet voice, in a whisper, because as we see, uh, as we'll see, um, uh, the rest of the disciples don't understand and don't know what's going on here. Um, this was, again, something that 
John quietly said, who is it, Lord? You know, because he's so close, and Peter's already flagged him down to do that. <clears throat> and then, in verse 26, Jesus answered, it is, he, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it. And when he had dipped the sop, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. So I believe that likely Jesus, just as John had whispered to Jesus, Jesus likewise in a quiet voice whispered back to John uh, the words that we find there in verse 26, that whoever he gave this sop, what is a sop? Well, sop is again a piece of bread uh, that you dip in uh, vinegar and then, and then partake of. And so, um, Jesus says, whomever I take this piece of bread, uh, and it, it was the Passover, so again, uh, they, they would have been uh, most likely using at that particular time, uh, they would have had unleavened bread there, but to, to take the, the bread and to dip it in the vinegar, and then Jesus says to whomever I give that, uh, two is the one who will betray me. That he tells to John, who asked him the question. That was, uh, again, uh, a sign to, for the host, as it were, to take a piece of bread, to dip it in vinegar, and to give it to someone sitting around the table uh, was a sign of friendship, was a sign of of honor. And uh, Jesus, again, he not only knelt at the feet of Judas and washed his feet, but now he even uses this token of friendship um, uh, to the very one who's betraying him and, uh, and gives the sop to Judas, which indicates Probably that just as John was on one side of Jesus, who was on the other side of Jesus? Probably Judas, right next to Jesus. Again, indicating how close someone can come to the Lord and yet betray him, not believe in him, not trust him. So Jesus was even showing this kind of ki kindness to the very one who had already plotted uh, to betray him and had already received 30 pieces of silver to do so. It reminds us of what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, bless those who curse you. Bless them. That is, pray for them. Um, do good to them. Do not return evil for evil. Do good to them. If they have done, if they have slandered us, if they have um, done some type of um, evil against us, the Lord says, don't take revenge. Don't return evil for evil. Uh, doesn't mean, again, we cannot correct. Doesn't mean we cannot rebuke does not mean that we cannot even um, seek justice um, in situations where we are 
uh, wronged in, in, in such a in such a way that we cannot just avoid. We cannot just leave it alone. So, you know, showing uh, blessing those who curse us does not mean that any of those things cannot be done. It just means that we don't take personal revenge. Uh, we can, however, in uh, certain cases, Matthew 18, we can uh, take matters to um, ultimately to to the eldership after we've gone through the first two stages of talking with the individual, bringing two or three witnesses, if all of those fail, if it is serious enough of a matter, it can be brought before the eldership. So again, blessing those who curse us does not mean that we can't um, take appropriate steps to correct or rebuke, to seek justice. But it means our, when we do so, we're not doing so out of revenge or hatred for that person. We're doing so even praying that God would use it for their good when we rebuke, correct, or uh, take matters to uh, to a church court that we're praying uh, for them. Again, the Apostle Paul reminds us in Romans 12 that we're not to be overcome by evil, but we are to overcome evil with good. Not with bitterness, not with resentment, not with revenge, but to overcome evil with good. Verse 27, And after the sop, Satan entered into him, that is, into Judas. Then said Jesus unto him, That thou doest, do quickly. No doubt Satan had already been working um, in some way within um, Judas to betray the Lord Jesus. But it seems at this particular point that Satan takes full control of Judas. Satan entered into him, it says. And so it seems that, that uh, there is um, a distinction made at this point. Whereas Satan may have been tempting him, Satan may have been leading him, he may have been following Satan uh, in the suggestions that Satan and temptations that Satan presented to him. At this point, it seems that uh, um, he gives himself entirely over to Satan, uh, takes control of him. And interestingly, we don't see him foaming at the mouth. You know, we don't see him thrown down as we see in other cases. Uh, so again. I think that it's interesting that we don't see that kind of outward manifestation, but nevertheless, um, there is a there is a taking control of of Judas here to do the most heinous thing that uh, one could possibly imagine to betray the sinless Son of God, and uh, that again is done without all of the. Uh, foaming of the mouth and and uh, you know uh, 
violence and all of those types of things that we tend to associate with with um, being possessed by devils or being possessed by Satan. That wasn't the case here, and yet he was taken over uh, by Satan. Because the first uh, temptations of the enemy in the case of Judas were not resisted, uh, Satan gained more and more and more control over Judas until he finally possessed him. Had uh, total control over Judas in, in directing his path and his, his steps. And it's, again, it's, it's a warning to us all. I don't believe that a Christian can be possessed by Satan. I don't think that a Christian can be entirely under the power of Satan, as Judas was under the power of Satan here. Judas was not a born-again Christian. He never was. Jesus makes that very clear in John 6, 64. He says that he was a devil from the beginning. He was contrary to. He never believed. He never truly trusted in the Lord. Though, again, he acted as though he did. But I think that, again, it's very sobering. I think that we need to learn from this that even as Christians, we can give a foothold which the New Testament teaches, we can give a foothold to the enemy in our lives. When we are tempted and we do not resist that temptation, if we simply, again, temptation within the life of a Christian can come from within by way of our own desires, our own lusts, um, so we, because we still have the remnants of sin. Um, and we will have the remnants of sin, even though we are regenerated. We still have the remnants of sin within us, against which we war and we battle. Uh, but we also have um, temptation that not only comes from within, but we have temptation that comes from without. And the enemy, Satan, uh, is one of those that tempt, can tempt us from without. Uh, the world, the flesh, inwardly, the flesh is uh, inward, the world is outward, and the devil. Um, and so we can be tempted from without. And regardless of the source, from, whether from within or from without, if we don't resist, if we don't say, uh, you know, I don't want to go down that path, uh, I'm going to flee to the Lord to help me. I'm going to look to the death of Christ because I'm crucified with Christ. And therefore, uh, that, that temptation, likewise, is crucified. If I will simply cast myself upon the Lord, and I know temptations, uh, because we're all tempted to do what is wrong, and I know temptations that we particularly struggle with that are um, perhaps not the same temptations that the next person struggles with as much as we do, um, uh, sometimes, again, we certainly know our weaknesses, but the enemy also knows our weaknesses. He's seen us fall. <laughs> How many times? Into those, uh, into those same uh, weaknesses, into those same temptations. 
And uh, so that's, that's where we're particularly vulnerable. And that's why I think that it's very important that we realize that if we, if we don't resist, if we don't say no, if we don't pull ourselves back by God's grace and say, I, you know, the Holy Spirit lives and dwells within me. I, I don't have to give in to this. Uh, Christ died that sin might not have dominion over me. That these temptations aren't stronger than the grace of God uh, that is mine. That the, uh, they are not stronger than the Spirit of God that dwells within me. They're not stronger than the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so if we, if we believe, again, that we uh, are not under sin's dominion, under temptation's dominion and power, because what Christ has done for us, even, those, even though those temptations seem so strong, if we say, I can't help it, it's hopeless, well, we will, again, not resist. We will give in. We will surrender. And I think that, again, that's where, um, you know, even in the lives of Christians, we begin to see this as a hopeless battle, and we uh, give in, and we find ourselves struggling um, to such a great degree. And when we get into that situation where we have failed and failed, many times it's very hard to come back to the Lord. Many times it's hard for us to, to say, Lord, uh, have mercy on me. But remember this. Remember this at all times. No matter how many times we have failed, we'll never find Jesus' arms folded. We'll never see his back. He will always welcome us as we flee to him no matter how many times we have failed, if we truly come to him, seeking his mercy, seeking his, his forgiveness. And that's the beauty. That's the beauty of salvation. That's the beauty of God's grace and mercy that is always available to us. When, in verse 27, when Jesus says, that thou doest, do quickly. Uh, Jesus is not uh, encouraging Judas to sin. Uh, he's not saying, uh, okay, Judas, uh, go out and sin, you know, uh, as if, you know, it's an enticement on Jesus' part to, to Judas to go out and to sin. It rather is saying... Jesus is rather saying to Judas that there's no longer any restraint from God uh, to prevent Judas from doing what he is about to do. God's removed the restraint so that now Judas can fulfill and do his, his wicked desires, the things that he wants to do. So Jesus is basically saying uh, to uh, Judas, I've given you over to your own wicked heart, to your own wicked desires, the purposes that you have uh, plotted and planned to do. I've given you over to them. So carry them out according to your own wicked and evil desires. Um, that's very similar 
what we find the Lord Jesus saying there as what we find, for example, in Ezekiel chapter 20, verse 39. Ezekiel 20, verse 39. God speaks to Ezekiel and says, As for you, O house of Israel, thus saith the Lord God, Go ye, serve ye, every one is idols, and hereafter also. If ye will not hearken unto me, but pollute ye my holy name no more with your gifts and with your idols. So if you're not going to worship me, if you're not going to do what I command you to do, go out and serve your own idols. I'm not going to restrain you anymore. I'm giving you over to the desires of your heart. That's what Romans 1 is saying. They rejected the, the, the truth of God. They suppressed the truth and unrighteousness and it says that God gave them over, God gave them over. And so uh, that's what I think is happening here is that uh, Jesus is saying, uh, I've given you over, go do um, that which you have in your own wicked heart uh, planned to do. And at the same time, that which Judas had, had planned to do was determined by God from all eternity. Uh, in Acts 4, 27 through 28. There it teaches that the, all of those who plotted and planned and executed the Lord Jesus, the sinless Son of God, all of that was foreordained uh, to, to happen by God. So again, it teaches us that man is responsible for his sins, and yet God has, has from eternity... Uh, determined all of these, purposed all of these things uh, that that should happen as well. So though the words of uh, uh, Jesus to John were whispered in verse 26, the words of Jesus to Judas here in verse 27 are spoken in the hearing of all the disciples. Um, and I think that's clear from the next verse in verse 28. No now no man at the table knew for what intent he spake this unto him. In other words, they all heard Jesus say that thou doest do quickly, but no one understood uh, that um, he was, he was uh, telling Judas to go and fulfill his own wicked desires uh, by way of uh, his plot and his plan to betray Christ. Which again, I think, Likewise tells us that, that uh, what John whispered to Jesus, who is it, Lord, and what Jesus said to John, he it is to whom I shall give a sop when I have dipped it, that was probably whispered because they didn't hear that. The, the rest of the disciples didn't hear that, but they heard Jesus, Jesus say to Judas, that thou doest do quickly. And they didn't understand it. Had they heard what he said earlier to John, perhaps they would have had a better idea what Jesus meant by that thou doest do quickly. But they didn't, I don't think, hear that part between John and Jesus, that, that whispering back and forth there. But now they do hear very clearly what Jesus tells Judas to do. Verse 29 for some of them thought, because Judas had the bag that Jesus had said unto him, buy those things that we have need of against the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So since Judas was the official treasurer, um, 
for the disciples. He kept, he distributed the contributions that they received. The people gave to the ministry of Christ. And some of the disciples uh, around the table thought that uh, Jesus was telling Judas to go and get more provisions for the remainder of the week. Uh, the Feast of Unleavened Bread lasted a full week. And so uh, perhaps that was in the minds of some of the disciples what Jesus was telling Judas to do. Others thought that perhaps he was sending Judas on a mission to, to supply the needs of some who were poor. Uh, they weren't clear. Uh, they, they were confused as to what Jesus, why Jesus uh, told Judas to go and to uh, do what he would do, do it quickly. This tells us again, uh, I think, the fact that uh, there was an official treasure there uh, caring for the funds that were given. I think it's, it's, it tells us that Jesus and his disciples were employed full-time in ministry and that they had a right to receive from those to whom they ministered. They had a right to receive gifts. They had a right to receive uh, offerings. They had a right to, to be paid for their ministry. Now, there are some religious organizations that don't have full-time ministers, and, and, and they, they believe that it's wrong and biblical to have paid ministers, that the ministers should be employed uh, elsewhere, and they should simply volunteer their time uh, uh, to, to minister. Now, Paul and Barnabas did so uh, uh, voluntarily, not because uh, he even says that they gave up the right. It was their right to receive um, the support of those to whom they ministered, but they voluntarily gave it up because people were charged, uh, you know, were saying to them that you're simply trying to make money off of the gospel, make money off of the ministry. Uh, and Paul says, I would rather, you know, work for my own keep uh, rather than receive money from those to whom I preach uh, and avoid these accusations that are coming against me. I don't want the ministry tarnished that way. But he had the right to receive, uh, to, uh, to receive contributions and gifts from those to whom he ministered, and he says so. Um, Jesus says that in Matthew 10.10 10, that the workman, speaking of the ministry, the workman is worthy of his hire. Uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9.14, likewise, that those who preach the gospel should uh, be supported by the gospel. He says... Uh, Verse 14, 1 Corinthians 9, Even so hath the Lord ordained that they which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. Likewise, in Galatians 6, 6, Apostle Paul says, Let him that is taught in the word communicate, that is, share, provide for, him that teacheth in all good things. So there, there, is a, uh, there is a right on the part of ministers 
faithful ministers to receive um, so that they can devote all their time, as the apostles said, to prayer and, and the Word of God. Uh, and uh, that's to your benefit. Uh, if, if I'm divided, if I cannot uh, uh, do so, then what I am able to do for you is much less by way of the ministry of the Word and prayer and, uh, and uh, counseling and, and uh, 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 all of the other aspects of the ministry. So the ministry is not a way to become rich for sure, but uh, is rather, uh, but it is at the same time of ministries to be cared for in earthly benefits by those who receive spiritual benefits. Finally, in verse 30, he then having received the sop, that is Judas, went immediately out and it was night. So immediately after these words of Jesus, that thou doest do quickly, uh, Judas leaves to set in motion from his own wicked heart the most glorious work of God in redeeming his beloved people. Sinful and wicked on Judas's part, but God uses it for our salvation. He takes the sins of people, the wickedness of Judas, uh, the Jewish religious leaders, the Romans. He takes all of that, and that becomes the means that God uses for the salvation, for the redemption of his beloved people. That should be an encouragement to us as I close today. A lot of wickedness, a lot of corruption in the world, right? It's all around us. Uh, it's in high places. Uh, there are threats uh, to us uh, by way of our freedoms all kinds of things that might frighten us and, and uh, throw us into a kind of panic uh, as to what could actually be coming our way. But ought we to be fearful? Ought we to be in panic over these things? I, I dare say that if God can take that which was most wicked, and that is the betrayal of Jesus, uh, the crucifixion, the, the suffering, the slandering, the false accusations brought against him, the crucifixion, the pain, the agony that Jesus went through. If he can take that which was the worst of all evils that have ever been committed against anyone, and he can turn that into the salvation of his people, then he can take whatever evils that may be in the world today and we need not be afraid because we serve such a mighty God who delights even to uh, take that which men intend for our, our destruction and to use for our salvation. I leave you with this last verse. Psalm 33, verses uh, 10 through 11. The Lord bringeth the counsel of the heathen to naught, to nothing. He maketh the devices of the people of none effect. The devices are, are the, the various schemes and plots against the righteous. He, God, makes the devices of the people of none effect. 
Verse 11, the counsel of the Lord standeth forever. In other words, his purposes are what stand forever. Not the purposes of wicked men, but his purposes. The thoughts of his heart to all generations. That's why we need not fret. That's why we need not panic. Fret not thyself, Psalm 37.1, because of evildoers, neither be thou envious against the workers of iniquity. Don't fret. Trust him. He's got it. He's got it under his almighty hands. Let's uh, stand in prayer. We are thankful, our God, that thou dost bring the counsel of the heathen to naught. Thou dost uh, even frustrate the plans and the devices of the wicked and cause them to be of none effect. It's thy purposes that stand forever thy plans and we Lord find great comfort in knowing that the God who loves us with an everlasting love is the God who controls all of these events and all of the evil that is plotted and planned against the righteous we commit our lives to thee and and pray that uh, thou would teach and instruct us, give to us, Lord, hearts to meditate upon thy word that, that uh, came uh, unto us from thee tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.